out of the sky My dreams went crashing When you said goodbye Who'd think that after all I've been to you That you and I would be through Hello, welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. So in this episode, I'll be exploring the selected letters of H.P. Lovecraft, Volume 4, uh, specifically uh, 20 letters that he wrote to various people between January and April 1933. So we, we got a little bit into 1933 in the last episode, but, but here we're going to jump in uh, quite deeply into the into this uh, transformative year in, in American politics. But as usual, that's not like the major priority of what, uh, what Lovecraft is uh, uh, writing about and, and, and thinking about in these years. Um, so, yeah, let's just jump into these and see where these go. He actually he writes to a lot of different people in this period of time. Um, like a, 10 or 11 people, different correspondence, distinct correspondence he, he wrote to during this period of time. So mostly you just have one or two letters to one any one any individual person. The only exception is E. Hoffman Price, who he wrote to a, a lot as he was building his friendship with him and working on the sequel to The Silver Key. I think I, I kind of teased that in the last episode, but in fact, it's it's in this period of time that he begins working on that. That... Uh, that important story, which we'll get to in, in several months when I when I come back to the final set of, of his revisions. All right, so let's just jump in. Uh, so we got a couple letters to James Ferdinand Morton, his old friend. Um, the first of these is January 26, 1933. Um, and this one, um, I mean, he talks a little bit about his personal commonization. So it's just a, a nice little reminder of how impoverished Lovecraft really was in these years, how he wasn't making too many big sales. He was making his living mostly from doing different types of revisions, um, some of which we'll be looking at in in, a, in our upcoming episodes. Um, so it, it, it's interesting details if you want to know about like the daily life and the personal habits of, of Lovecraft. He really did a penny pinch in this time of his life. We already saw in a in a in a previous episode how he had moved to a different house to to a more affordable house, one he he rather liked, but. Uh, um, or maybe that's later. I keep confusing the, the ones I took notes on and the ones I talked about. I do think it's a little bit later. It's like in the middle of 1933 that he moves to the College Street house. But all the personal conversation puts that into context, I guess. Uh, the really interesting thing about this letter is when he gets into his racial heritage, something he often does, and it seems like a kind of a, a lame talk topic to be talking to James Morton about because it's something they've covered before um, and something he was probably quite familiar with. But the key point is, and this is something that came up, I think, in the last time we were looking at letters uh, months ago, is how much he accepted that one's racial heritage is very much an imagined past. That, you know, racial heritage, you know, when you go back far enough, it's all going to be a stoop anyways. So a big part of one's racial identity or ethnic identity, we might say now, and in and, and Lovecraft's day, these were often confused, right? Where people talk about their Nordic, the Nordic race. Now we might talk about Germanic ethnicity or something, or Celtic ethnicity. 
but Lovecraft talked about these as race often, so that's kind of what he's talking about here. But he mentions how it really is an imagined thing, um, which is something he, I think he came to terms with personally uh, a few years earlier. For instance, here's what he writes. It's still a little racist, um, but let's, let's, so we don't want to forget that. I'm not apologizing for him or trying to say he, he completely abandoned his racist ideas, but uh, he does have a slightly different view on them at this point in his life. He says, my interest grows languid and academic as names recede towards the doomsday book or pre-Renaissance oblivion, since the amount of any one strain of blood I may inherit from such a date is virtually negligible. So long as it isn't Negroid or Australoid, I don't kick. I hate the Middle Ages, so I don't take much satisfaction in establishing a linkage with them. If I could only get back to classical antiquity, that would be another matter. In imagination, I permit myself to fancy that some of the Welshmen in my line might be descended from Roman officials in the legions of General Julius Agricola or other conquerors or rulers of the province of Britain, end quote. So here he basically admits that it's all mythology after a certain point, and it's a little bit of a personal game, just like how you know, people will play ancestry games today uh, with, with their heritage. Um, he writes them again uh, uh, less than a week later on February 1st, 1933, um, where he talks about the needs to have new additions to his library, a little bit, but mostly he writes here about a fountain pen. So it's another very, very personal anecdote, something we get a lot in the Morton letters, actually. A very personal anecdote, this case about the, you know, the type of pen he's writing with, the fountain pen he's, he's, working, he's working with, and the pros and cons of it. And he's very literary in how he describes the experience of dipping in the pen. Of course, in those days, when you did use those fountain pens, it was a different experience. You know, the sound it makes and how much ink it carries and the sound and the feel of it dipping in and the patting down of the wet ink, all that kind of stuff. It was a different experience than we have with writing now. So... Um, I don't know if anyone has quite that relationship with their PC. Maybe they do, but, uh, you know, it's, it's quite literary here. It's, it's kind of inter- a little interesting anecdote. So that's all we have uh, to James F. Morton. So next we have a couple letters to Vernon Shea, um, someone he'd been corresponding with for quite a while by this point, but he is one of the younger uh, correspondents that Lovecraft uh, wrote to, a young uh, uh, weird fiction writer at the time. Uh, so this, the first of these is 20, the 28th of January, 1933. And, um, you know, this, this letter takes the form of kind of reading advice or suggestions to a younger writer. And, and we've seen these kind of letters before, even to Shea. This time he goes through a lot of weird fiction writers. Uh, for instance, some of his favorites he mentions here, like uh, Chambers, The Yellow Sign. He mentions Edison's The Worm Ouroboros. Um, Robert Maturin, Melmoth, The Wanderer. What else we got? Green Wilderbeast. Some stories I never heard of before. S. Fowler Wright, The World Below. Um, so he goes through and praises um, quite a few of these. He talks a little bit about uh, drama here. And uh, some of his experiences reading drama. I think it gets a little bit into how he he's not really good at that. Maybe that's here. Um, but... Uh, he also talks about his workload. He, he kind of is a little bit depressed, it seems, about his workload in terms of letters and revisions and, and things like that. And his big project, you could tell, tell in these letters that of all these revision projects and things, that he, the thing he's most excited with, with doing at this time seems to be the, the E. Hoffman Price collaboration on the Silver Key sequel. Um, but he's a little, even this, a little bit depressed about its, its potential at this point. But you can tell he's already started thinking about it and writing it. 
Now he comes back and writes to to Shea on March 24th, 1933, and this is a bit of a follow-up um, on several issues. Uh, so we get a little bit more on recommendations of who to read and what to be exposed to. He definitely praises here uh, Milton. Um, he talks about going to a T.S. Eliot reading, and he's got mixed feelings about T.S. Eliot, um, of course. like He definitely sees the power of something like the Wastelands, but he commonly commented on how kind of impenetrable it was and how difficult it is to, and it really is part of the modernist tradition, which he had misgivings about from time to time. But he certainly seemed to like Milton quite a lot uh, for good reasons. Um, he talks about writing the Whitehead Memorial and Weird Tales. That's something that came up in the previous episode where uh, he was write, you know, writing with uh, Farnsworth Wright about Whitehead's death and giving some additional details. It seems that evolved into a full-blown memorial that, that Lovecraft penned for for Whitehead in the text of Weird Tales. Um, so a lot more of, of the, on writers and writing, right? It's a common thing he writes to Shea. He does also mention a little bit on local history and a recent visit he took to um, Farrington. Uh, it being March, he's begun once again his, his uh, travels throughout New England to different towns to experience these local communities that he, he loved to do his walking tours of. Um, now, maybe most interesting for the textual history of the Silver Key sequel is he talks about working with Price and what it's like. And you can tell there's a lot of tension between the two styles of the two writers. He writes, did seven and a half pages of Silver Key sequel when a flood of revision swamped me and stalled the job. I'm having to overwrite Price altogether in style. It will be my prose throughout unless he proposes later changes. His mathematical ideas, however, will be retained. But God knows when I'll ever be able to continue the damn thing. So it's a small little uh, phrase, but it's something that's confirmed in later letters, even to Price, where he talks about the, the need to uh, kind of superimpose his own style throughout the whole thing. So, you know, that leads me to believe that maybe this is going to be more of a much, much more of a Lovecraft story. And I, and I got to admit, I haven't read it yet. I will before this series is done, but it's something I'm going to have to, I'll get to pretty shortly, actually. So that's what we have to Vernon Shea, a couple interesting letters about writers and writing. All right, so next up, August Durleth. Um, so this was a bit of a weird one. I, I, maybe someone can help me with the context of this story. Um, here's how it begins. Well, I have read and revised, read the revised and reproportioned evening in the spring, and I believe you have made tremendous improvements over any of the original fragments and sections now embodied in it. End quote. So Durleth wrote this story, this novel, Evening and Spring. Um, and as far as I can tell, I, I searched science fiction database. I, I searched Durleth's web, Wikipedia website. And it seems Evening and Spring is a novel he wrote in 1941. Right? Um, or at least it was published in 1941. It seems quite a long time, you know, for eight years for it to sit on the shelf. Maybe that's just what happened. There's no need to explain more than that. Um, but maybe there's more to this. So is this the same um, novel or story that is later published as Evening and Spring? Or is it a different story? And he, just bought, he, took the, he changed the name, but he took back the Evening and Spring name for later work. I don't know. The notes in the, the table of contents in the anthology of letters here isn't very helpful. And of course, Durleth was one of the editors of the selected letters. So I guess if there was more of a story to this, he may have explained it or included it. But I will mention there are no footnotes for any of these. The, what we really have for notes are uh, in the table of contents where a brief description of each letter is given. 
So I don't know, but there does seem to be a, maybe the story was just sitting on a, on a shelf for a number of years before it was finally published. Um, but anyways, here we get some of his opinions about this, this story and he seems to like it. He seems to really like it and it leads him to ponder like his own kind of geographical context because that apparently is a Wisconsin story. And so what he kind of encouraged Erleth to do is to write like those kind of Wisconsin stories to really dig into the local culture and identity. Um, now, in this letter, he also talks about sharing his draft of, or maybe it's the published version of Witch House, Dreams in the Witch House, a story we'll be getting into shortly. Um, and this is a really fun little bit of, of focus on detail that Lovecraft seemed to care a lot about. And, the, and it ties to a lot of what he writes to Durlath about how you need to have that really local authenticity. And so the question is like the word Beetlejuice for the star, the star Beetlejuice. Yes. What would its name be? Um, what would it be in the Necronomicon? You'd have to consider the language that Necronomicon was originally written in, right? And find out what the term for that star was in that language and in that culture. And he is sure it would be, would be different, right? So apparently the Arabic world, I didn't look this up, but the Arabic word for it, according to Lovecraft, is Ibit al-Jazuba. And that becomes anglicized or Latinized, maybe maybe it got during the Ar the Latin Arabic translations, it got switched over to Beetlejuice during that, the same way like Ibn Sina becomes Avicenna, or, or that kind of thing. Um, but he writes, the point is that one can't devise a proto-name for Beetlejuice since the origin of the latter is known. From what you say, and and if it's anything like Windwalker, the new tale bits far to fair to be a notable production. I shall be eagerly on the lookout for it, end quote. So he praises the story, but he has these little detail questions, as he always has. Um, then we have a letter to Derleth dated April 1st. Um, yeah, this is... Uh, this is more like... There's some more philosophy here about race and tradition and his conservatism. Um, basically, he's talking in this letter quite a bit about the illusion of ancestry, something we've already saw in the letter to Morton, where he talks about his own personal ancestry. Here, he kind of admits that ancestry itself is going to be an illusion. It's something we can't cut grasp. It's going to be mythology. It's going to be part of, part of our personal mythology as well. But at the same time, you know, Lovecraft believes we really need this. We really need tradition. Uh, and we cannot break free of it that easily. And if we do... Uh, we end up with anxiety and restlessness, and that's worse than than whatever bad things the tradition might offer us. So he he writes, no individual or group trying to break away from what blind hereditary tradition has bequeathed ever achieves much real sense of harmony or repose in the new system. There is a feeling of something broken, a lack of harmony with past and background, which promotes a restlessness often expressed in further marks of aimlessness and incongruity. An unconscious aesthetic sense protects against a violation of a certain unity in the historical stream. And this, whatever or not, old code has any merely rational value. Of course, this disharmony and protest do not occur in cases of gradual modification extending over several generations, end quote. So here's a little of a, you know, I think it's actually true, perhaps. You know, no tradition is the same permanently throughout time. But if they're changing slightly over time, you know, gener individual generations don't feel just like evolution, right? Um, you know, those, those changes generation to generation are so subtle, no one ever experiences them, but given enough time, they're significant. But they're not disruptive change. But he thinks modernity is this shattering of tradition. And it's going to leave people with all sorts of anxieties and uncertainties. 
and all that. But at the same time, he he thinks there's kind of an a uh, an allusion to any belief in in one's ancestry or or tradition. It seems a bit of a contradiction, uh, contradiction, but it's it's kind of almost like a necessary illusion that one one has. I guess that's all I'll read it. All right, that's two to August or less. Um, so now we have a couple to uh, Farnsworth Wright. Farnsworth Wright, of course, the editor of Weird Tales. Um, the first of these is February 8th, uh, 1933. Um, this is uh, more on the death of Whitehead. He had written to Farnsworth Wright actually a little bit earlier on the death of Whitehead. So this is a little bit more on HS, as he often refers to him in the letters. Now, it's a very personal letter. It gets a lot of his own personal stories, or at least a couple of his personal stories about Whitehead, also about his final days, or at least what Lovecraft knew about his final days um, and his, you know, his physical condition at the end of his life. So it's a, it's a good letter for understanding, I guess, how much Whitehead's death affected his friends and, and particularly Lovecraft. Um, a little bit later, uh, on February 16th, he writes Farnsworth Wright again, and this time it's about uh, Lovecraft's own personal business, that is the publication of Dreams of the Witch House, which was uh, published in Weird Tales, but for an incredibly low pay. Um, and so it gets into a little bit on the like Lovecraft's income and the need for money and his poverty, and the suggestion, I guess, by Farnsworth Wright, the suggestion you make that perhaps Lovecraft should be adapting, so getting selling adaptations of his stories or selling rights to his stories for adaptations, radio adaptations, or whatever, and Lovecraft firmly rejecting the dramatization of his stories. In fact, this is so important. He actually brings this up in a in a letter just a a week or so later to someone else, as we'll come to later on. So. Uh, yeah, those two letters to write, one dealing with Henry S. Whitehead, the other with uh, his own personal financial difficulties, but is still his refusal to see his stories uh, taken over by others. Um, so next we have a story or a letter to E. Hoffman Price. Uh, we'll look at four of them, actually, four letters to E. Hoffman Price. Um, this was the first of these is February 15th, 1933. This is kind of a follow up to the Derleth letter about evening and spring, that story I mentioned before where... You know, it seemed it seemed he read a draft of it of something called Evening and Spring in 1933, but the only story I could find was this publication from 1941. I don't know if it's the same story. I'm going to guess it is, but it just sat on a on a you know in Derleth's desk for that long, or it took that long to get published. But this is the letter where he really digs into how much of an effect it had on him. So this is really significant because he often would praise Derleth personally, but here he's praising Derleth to um to a friend uh in quite a you know quite openly and saying how much reading evening and spring made him think about his own the own past in, in providence his experience in providence so it's a it's a pretty good letter now a couple of things to say here is one is when he talks about derleth to e hoffman paris he uses comte derlet um which is his, his sort of personal pen name for for August Erleth. Of course, when August Erleth shows up in fiction as the writer of a, what's the book he writes? Cult the Jews or something, the, the Gouge. Um, that is a, a book that's in, in Lovecraft's imagination written by someone who's like 
uh, or akin to Derleth, but in the letters like this, he would write about him as Comte Derleth, Derleth, like a, give him a French kind of a French Frank a francophone name. But here's what, anyways, I, what I want to get into here is, is what he says about Derleth's impact on his own kind of imagination about his past and his own geography. He writes this, like Derleth. I was also sensitive to the mystery-fraught streets and huddled roofs of the town and often took rambles of unfamiliar sections for the sake of bizarre atmospheric and architectural effects, ancient gables and chimneys under varied conditions of light and mist, etc. I always thought the oldest sections, where centuries of continuous life had left the most deposits, and thus formed my lifelong love for colonial houses and vistas. This, of course, Derleth could never get in his village, although he would probably have been an rhapsodic about old providence good old providence there's no other town quite like it through it though a center of hundreds of thousands it has kept an archaic village-like quality which will never die and which has even more marked in my which is even now more marked in my youth than now the town lies at the head of a bay with okay then he gets into the description but he's been inspired by reading this story this this novel evening in the spring to think about his own use of, of geography and space and architecture, um, which of course is such a notable part of Lovecraft's writing in my, in my view. And he goes on at quite a lot of length here. Um, now, after going on for quite a while in this, in this regard, he switches gears and talks about a, a myth cycle that, that apparently E. Hoffman Price discovered for him. And he says this, what you say of your new tale and of the Kushakra, Plashka, Kusha, Salman, Mount, Vern, Cesar, Dainar, Shamabala, Myth Cycle, which you have dug up, interests me to fever heat. I don't know what that is. It's presented here as a real text or something. Um, but there it is. Maybe some obscure text. Um, not much more to say here. He complains a little bit about astrology. Um, thing he likes to complain about. But anyways, this is a pretty good letter. This is one I, I think might be worth checking out in a little bit more detail. Um, now, on March 2nd, he follows up and writes E. Hoffman Price again, uh, this time about Edison, in particular, the worm Ouroboros, uh, which he, this I think is a follow-up to that myth cycle that Farnsworth Wright was recommending. And he's saying, if you want to read another good one, Edison's The Worm Ouroboros is a really, really good one. Um, I've actually never read this story. This novel, uh, I remember my parents had a copy of it, an old, uh, you know, an old reprint of it. I think it was published. I think they had it with like their old copy of Lord of the Rings, like whatever, like from the 60s. Uh, that 60s or maybe early 70s edition. It may have been a 60s edition of it. I don't know if it was my mom or, or my dad's version, but they also had a copy of Edison's The Worm Moral Boros. And the cover art was very similar in style maybe I'll, I'll try to dig it up this this summer when i go back to wisconsin and give it a try give it a read um, i don't know if that was like reprinted as part of like this 1960s kind of revival of interest in in lord of the rings um, but anyways lovecraft really liked this. this isn't the first time he mentions edison's edison's work um, comes up quite a lot actually What else do we have here? March 24th, 
E. Hoffman Price. Uh, this was actually written on 24th through the 27th. Now, this really gets into the writing of the C.S. Over Key sequel, um, where he talks about the changes he's making to Price's uh, story and prose. So that's he's changing both things. He's changing the tone of the story and the writing style to make it more smooth throughout, but he's also making significant changes to Price's story itself. So this is his explanation to Price about the kinds of changes he made. Uh, after talking about that, he goes into his own publication of The Witch House, and he's somewhat happy about that. He seems not too high on this story. I think it's a great story. I think it's one of his best uh, cosmic horror tales. I really love Dreams of the Witch House. And I'll talk about this in a future episode uh, when I actually get into that story. But I think it's a really, really great story. Um, but Lovecraft seemed not too up on this. And some other people criticized the story. And he mentioned that in some of these letters too, how people uh, you know, weren't as high on the story as some of his others. But I, I dig it. I think it's got some interesting body horror. It's got... Uh, some wonderful stuff about local mythology and local traditions and immigration. It's got wonderful stuff on mathematics and new science. Uh, there's so many good stuff going on there. And then, of course, the history of witchcraft in New England. It all fits together in a nice little short tale. In some, it's, really, it's often kind of creepy. Um, anyways, he does also uh, come back to an old theme he's been talking about a while for a while and that is why he cannot really publish more weird tales anymore how that market's sort of drying up for him and he gets into again once again the problems of commercial fiction now he, he, so he seems like he can't really upgrade the popular fiction audience to what he is capable of and he would like to see he's, he's kind of saying it's all dumbed down right and he's saying he can't really reach the higher literary degrees he would like to see. But he really can't at the same time enter into literate fiction either because they don't deal with his topics. That was sort of his complaint he's been making for a while. For instance, he writes here, um, Actually, cheap readers don't resent a half-literate story nearly as much as literate readers seem to resent a typical formula product. However, this applies only to specialized groups like Weird and sci Scientification where no higher-grade magazines exist. Cheap general magazines have nothing to gain by improvement since the literate general reader has magazines of his own and would not have any occasion to purchase the pulp product, end quote. So he's saying may, the only real hope is in those early specialized fields. So he actually suggests science fiction, early science fiction, and weird tales as a place where maybe you can push the literary frontier a little bit more because readers don't have the higher stuff to go to. But when you're talking about like just many other genres, you know, you have the people who read the high-end magazines and the people who read the pulps. And Lovecraft is increasingly feeling he's, he's someone who's stuck in between these two areas. Um, then we got April 6, 1933, also to Price, uh, where he talks about completing the revisions of the Silver Key sequel. And he discusses uh, more story ideas with him. And he goes into quite a lot of detail here, point by point, about the major changes he's made. And, and if you're interested in the textual history of, of this story, I think this is probably the most important letter to read because he does get into, you know, a lot of detail of the changes he makes. I'll just read you a bit of this. He says, he writes, 
Point three concerns the problem of getting rid of the schoolroom effect inherent in the detailed development of the conic section theory of the cosmos. Clearly, a short story cannot devote particularly a quarter of its length to academic dialectics. And this sort of thing ruins the fantastic atmosphere anyways. My solution, aside from expanding the hotel so that this phase will occupy a smaller part, it really can't be a major climax. It simply isn't the stuff of fictional climaxes. It's to condense and detechnalize the geometric part get as with little sacrifice of essential content as possible, end quote. Now, we know from his earlier letter, was it the one to Durleth, where he says, you know, one thing he kept in the, the story was this technical aspect, because that's something he couldn't really improve on. But here he explains how he had to de-emphasize that in the context of the whole tale, and he explains how he did it. So he does this point by point with about six or seven different things that he changed, including the length, um, the, you know, some aspects of the ending and things like that. So he does all this. And then at the end, he sort of says, I don't know how much commercial value this story is going to have at the end of the day. So he's still sort of really depressed about the, the fate of, of his, his profession as a, as a writer. So... So anyways, a couple important letters about the publication and writing of the, of the Silver Key sequel. So next we'll get into a couple letters to Clark Ashton Smith. Uh, the first of these is February 18th. Um, this is kind of a, joins up with the, a previ the previous letter to Price where uh, the, the letter where he's talking about their last evening in spring and then this myth cycle that, that Price seemed to have dug up because he shares this, I, this myth cycle with Smith. Um, and gives a description of it, and it's, it's just kind of a follow-up to that idea. Not too much to say about it, though. And then we have a letter dated April 8th, 1933, which, again, kind of is just building off of things he's already written to Price, specifically talking about the completion of the Silver Key sequel and a summary of the ideas in that in that tale so nothing too original or important in these two two letters um, we haven't seen any really good letters to clark ashton smith in, a, in quite a while unfortunately all right so um moving on uh richard l la morse um he's written he's been writing to him for quite a while he is one of the later correspondents to Lovecraft, so I think he appeared maybe in the third volume, but but certainly we've seen him in earlier episodes on, on the fourth volume of the Selected Letters. He was a librarian at Princeton. Uh, he was a poet, um, and he was kind of in that Lovecraft circle. So, um, you know, he has his own his own career, though. He's not just a he's not just known as a Lovecraft correspondent. So, but we only have one letter to him this time around. Um, and this, again, nothing new here from what we've already been talking about. Uh, he talks about dreams of the witch house and his feelings about that story. And we see his frustration with this story uh, in this letter. He writes, um, by the way, since you have such a charitable opinion of my fictional attempts, you may be pleased to hear that my latest story, The Dreams of the Witch House, written exactly a year ago, will appear during the present 12th month in Weird Tales. I've become disgusted with the whole business, but Derleth, to whom it was lent, happened to show this story to editor Wright. Unquote. So it sounds like Derleth pushed to see this story get published, um, but he only got $140 for it. So I think he's a little disgusted about the price of it. But he also then kind of has a pretty angry rant about the idea of his stories being dramatized. 
um, something he really refuses and does not want to see happen. We've already talked about that. So that's all we have to, uh, uh, to Richard Ellie Morse. Next, we had to, uh, a letter to Alfred Galpin. He was more of a literary critic, as I understand it. He's also another Wisconsin connection, along with Derleth. Anyways, we got one letter um, to him dated March 24th, 1933. And this one talks about the need for ha to have emotional balance in life and specifically how aging helps calm one's emotional stability. I don't know if that's a universal experience. I've met plenty of older people who don't have that emotional stability. But it might be true that generally people, when compared to like their teenage years or their 20s, tend to do calm down in their older age. So it's a... It's kind of a banal statement, I guess. But it's here. It's, it's all we really have to talk about in this particular letter. Um, so, yeah, let's just move on. Next, we have two letters to Elizabeth Tolbridge. Um, the first of these is dated March 25th, 1933. And this is kind of interesting. This is uh, some reflection on Japanese art and their cultural spirit, if you will. Um, he also talks a little bit on archaeology prehistoric civilizations, mythology, and folklore, which always are interesting things to hear Lovecraft comment on. Um, now, Lovecraft actually seems to have a little bit of fondness for, for Japanese art. He writes, My admiration of Japanese art dating from the days when my infant eyes rested upon various screens, fans, and bits of pottery from the old home had always been prodigiously keen, and this stationery embodies some of the most attractive characteristics. The combination of utter simplicity, perfect harmony, and civilized repose is quite irresistible, and form something which could never be duplicated outside of Japan. The Japanese carry the spirit of art into the smallest detail of life more fully than any other people since the Greeks, and it will be an irreplaceable loss if their newer generation lose the older spirit in an effort to assimilate Western traditions. Hybridism never pays, end quote. So it starts out as uh, just a nice kind of positive reflection on Japanese art in general, but it ends with him coming back to his kind of standard thesis about the need for civilizations to maintain their cultural identity and the dangers of of assimilation if you will assimilation to uh to more dominant cultures now as for like ar archaeology and folklore he, he does seem to think that folklore feeds into contemporary civilizations it's hard not to see that right if you look at you know a lot of cultures still maintain folklore from the past and still make it part of their traditions. But he's talking about archaeology, and he's here he's more doubtful whether archaeology is, can be a... Can, you can see a continuous trend from archaeological relics to, to contemporary civilizations and cultures. Um, so he kind of sets the difference between really, really old stuff, like stuff from hundreds of thousands of years ago, and folklore, which might be, you know, 10, you know, 8, 9, 10,000 years old. Um, this leads him to to actually bring up Hoffman Price's uh, discovery of this mist cycle, um, which I really should look up. Um, maybe I'll try to do that before the next episode, because it, it seems it's an interesting point. Maybe I should have uh, dug into it. If anyone knows anything about it, let me know. I'd love to to hear about it. Now, in this letter to Toldridge, he also mentions a little bit about his revision work, which he was busy with. Now, the next letter we have to Tollbridge is, there's not much to say about it, it's just him hunting for a new home. 
Um, finances forced him to find a new home. Eventually, that'll be 66 College Street in Providence, and that will be an issue where that comes up, I think, in the next episode when we'll talk about he makes that move uh, sometime in the in middle of 1933. Next, we have a letter to Bernard Austin Dwyer, uh, dated August 23rd. So I guess there's not too much biographical to say about Dwyer that's relevant. I don't think he was a major weird fiction writer. Um, yeah, he published one poem in Weird Tales. That's it. So he had a very, very brief t- career in weird fiction. But he was a friend of Lovecraft's anyways and, and shared letters with him. Um, so this letter is quite, he writes quite a lot here about Robert E. Howard and his discussion of his ideas. And it's something I brought up last time. It's like, we really know that his relationship with Howard is kind of special because when he's talking about him to other people, he's often talking about ideas. Um, Not just books they read or things they wrote, but he's actually engaging with his ideas. And here he gets into the big heart of the conversation he's having with Robert E. Howard by this point, which is between civilization versus barbarism. Right. And he basically it seems that Lovecraft's opinion is expressed to Dwyer. And of course, he says something similar to this to Howard on several occasions in his exchange with him is that barbarism will uh, will weaken and waste what he calls a quote unquote superior race. So if you're a part of the superior race and you embrace barbarism, you're just wasting your potential. But presumably there are races that wouldn't be wasted by being barbarism because they just are bar- barbaric kind of as their cultural identity or, or heritage. So it wouldn't be as damaging to some cultures as to so-called superior cultures. Um, now this is something he's going to go back and forth on quite a lot. I think for Howard, barbarism was always a useful kind of element of any culture, right? And it could actually be quite creative and dynamic in in many ways. Uh, it's something that Lovecraft couldn't quite s- swallow throughout their conversations. Uh, it's something we're going to get into a lot when we dig into those letters in more detail. So that's all we got there. And speaking of Howard, the final letter I want to talk about in this episode is a pretty long one he wrote from March 25th to 29th to Robert E. Howard. Um, where he talks about um, various, many, very, very many topics, uh, from sports to his own personal library uh, to the romanticization of barbarism. And in fact, it seems that this letter may have inspired his letter to Dwyer, written just one month later, because it's dealing with some of the main ideas, same similar ideas, such as Howard's romanticization of barbarism um, or the barbaric age. Uh, he talks a little bit, also or quite a lot here, about his own education and his early writings, his early works, things like even The Beast in the Cave, one of the first stories we looked at in this whole podcast. He mentions his, his first work that's worth reading. It talks about other of his youthful writings, uh, some stuff that didn't survive. He talked about he destroyed a bunch of old stories. So he gets into some detail about his own early work. But we do see a lot of the points of contention between Robert E. Howard and Lovecraft in this, such as the attitude towards sports and the attitude towards towards freedom. Um, I guess that's where I want to kind of leave off here is to to, um, go into what he says about freedom here. He's he's kind of saying there there's this type of liberty that's kind of mature. Uh, He actually sounds a little bit like Tocqueville here. Uh, There's kind of this mature individualism versus uh, or he calls kind of liberty and there's the what the radicals want which he calls a wild and untrampled freedom 
quote, just what is this wild and untrampled freedom that our modern radicals are so vervaciously clamoring for? What is it that they want to do that they can't do? I'm curious to know, for they never seem to convey a very clear idea. I don't see many honest and well-disposed people sitting in dungeons with their legs in iron stocks, nor do I see in the varied and active life of the modern average man anything resembling emasculation or reduction to the guinea pig or rabbit stage. Just what do our free souls want to do? Ride bicycles on sideways? Disregard traffic signs and collide with other people's cars? Play the radio at 3 a.m.? Shoot and car people for fun or what? If they despise artists who smudge on canvas and scientists who have a regard for truth, what is that that they don't despise? Do they esteem running amok with automatic pistols, setting fire to houses at will, pitching tents in the middle of the public streets? Or what the hell? I've never seen anybody whom I could imagine is doing any differently from what he actually does do without any interference from anybody. And yet half of our young intelligentsia are clamoring for mystical freedom, which they imagine exists somewhere in the land of Cockney. So that's a good uh, place to end. It's a, it's a really important letter, but I'm not going to say too much about it because I'm going to cover all those letters in the future. So uh, that's all for this episode. Uh, in the next episode, I'll be looking at the letters from April to July 1933 from the fourth volume of the Selected Letters. So as always, I'll look at about 20 letters and... and and that's it. So we're about halfway through the fourth, the fourth volume of the Selected Letters. And hopefully there's a lot of interesting stuff coming up. Um, so in this one, we got uh, the writing of the Silver Key sequel. We have the publication of Dreams of the Witch House. We have a lot of rehashing of some old ideas we've heard before from Lovecraft. So nothing too groundbreaking, nothing too exciting in this set. But um, in any case, I hope you did. Uh, get something out of this. Uh, I certainly got a few interesting points out of this. I want to know more about this this uh, myth cycle that Hoffman Price dug up. So I'm going to see if I can find anything else about it. Um, but I guess that's it for now. So if you have any thoughts or ideas about any of this stuff, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, but if not, I'll see you next time as I dig deeper into the select letters of H.P. Lovecraft. Thanks for listening. Gee, it breaks my heart to see you day after day turning away as much as to say you've never known me stranger after sharing all your